0: Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors. Great Days Outdoors Magazine guides you on hunting and fishing south of the Mason Dixon. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today wherever fine magazines are sold or save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. And also brought to you by Fatanas Defense, Masters of Darkness. Fatanas Defense is proud to offer the PD Pro line of night vision systems. The PD Pro series is the world's smallest and lightest night vision goggles, built around the Fotana 16mm filmless 4G image intensifier tubes and their hybrid filmless 18mm image intensifier tubes. These ultra-light, ultra-compact night vision systems deliver the cleanest image, best resolution, smallest, most transparent halo, and best overall performance and function of any night vision system available. The PD Pro line consists of the PD Pro M, 16mm monocular, the PD Pro B, 16mm binocular, and the PD Pro Q, panoramic night vision system, Patanas Defense, Masters of Darkness. I'm your host, Joe Baia, here with my co-host, Butch Theory, again this week.
1: How are we doing today, Joe? Doing great. What you got for us this week?
0: But on today's show, we're going to be talking about something that I have an intrinsic interest in this. And I don't know that uh, maybe a lot of people don't, but I've always thought it was very cool to be with someone who understands the species in the woods. You know, like when we're out there on our property and you know, you can walk around and they're telling you what things are that maybe you've seen it a bunch and you just never knew what it was. Or or maybe you've never, never seen it at all because you're never paying that close attention. But
1: grasses uh, and uh, brushes and trees and
0: little Forbes and you know little things you've never even heard of I think we all we all see the big stuff and kind of understand for the most part what that is or we think we know what it is right but there's a whole lot more to it than that and really understanding the native species that are there or what should be there that isn't there any longer you ever been able to have somebody out on your place and kind of walk around and just kind of let them fill you in on all the things you're not noticing when you're looking for deer tracks and turkey tracks
1: yeah man about uh, just people you know that don't specialize in that necessarily but people you know that are in the timber industry and in the land sales industry like yourself that know a lot more than than we do so it's really cool to have somebody on your property that can walk through those things with you because like you say what does native mean and is my native the same as your native you know our places right. are separated by 100 or so miles i mean what's what is native so i'm, I'm excited to get into it today
0: yeah, absolutely. But before we do that, we're going to give you guys another timber market update with Timber Mart South. Joining us is Jonathan Smith, the executive director of Timber Mart South for this week's current timber market prices update. In this week's segment, we're going to be looking at timber prices for the state of Arkansas. So Jonathan, welcome back to hunting land. What's been happening in Arkansas and what time period are we looking at today?
2: Thanks for having me on, Joe. Arkansas today, we're looking at fourth quarter 21. Uh, so we, we just wrapped up last quarter and, uh, we're looking at, uh, statewide stumpage prices out there.
0: All right. So what are we looking at in the pine markets and, and then the hardwood
2: markets? In the pine markets, uh, pine saw timber was, uh, $29 even, uh, pine chipping saw was at $20 and 77 cents and pine pulp wood was at 628.
0: Well, on saw timber and chip and saw, that's a little bit higher than what I've been seeing in, in my local market in Alabama. How does that relate back to the, uh, the trend, you know, is that up or down for Arkansas?
2: So the pine saw timber and the, uh, pine chip and saw are looking at the charts and the trends. Those are up over our last four years, five years of information there. So, wow. uh, prices are pretty strong for saw timber and chip and saw out there
0: it's wow, good to hear. What about hardwood?
2: Hardwood. Arkansas actually has the highest hardwood salt timber price in our footprint uh, at 4198 a ton and hardwood pulpwood at $10.18 a ton.
0: And it's the same thing. Uh, you mentioned it's highest in the, in the footprint, but is that up for
2: them? That is still up over the four-quarter average. It is not their highest, but uh, it is it is a good price for what they have been for what the prices have been doing over the last couple of quarters.
0: You know, in our markets, we've seen some fluctuations in Alabama and Florida and parts of Georgia due to a confluence of, of factors. What's driving the increase in Arkansas?
2: I think you've got some of those same factors. We've had, we've been pretty wet all across the South for most of the fourth quarter. Um, you got a lot of market activity, a lot of your sawmills or uh, trying to capitalize on some of the swings in lumber prices, and so they're not closing the mills or closing uh, shifts. They're they're actually picking up extra shifts, trying to make production, and and with that, that just generates demand for the raw material, uh, which is good for the landowner.
0: You know. Jonathan, you're talking about picking up shifts and, you know, they're trying to produce more. One of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, at what point will we start to see additional uh, supply? I guess you would want to, capacity is what I'm looking for. Additional capacity, where are we going to start to see people making investments in additional capacity across the South, really? If prices can stay high, do you see any of that happening in Arkansas? Are you starting to see any new mills opening or, or anything that would point to some more competition for those raw materials? Uh, we're, yes, we're seeing it
2: just about everywhere. Not so much uh, new greenfield uh, facilities, but uh, a lot of your uh, mill owners are investing in expansion and upgrades, you know, for example, you know, uh, looking at Pulp and paper in Arkansas. Uh, you know, Domtar, they are continuing to ramp up production on uncoated free sheets. So they're shifting on the pulp one side of things, shifting uh, to what their products they're making. Uh, Pactive Evergreen has made a conscious effort to uh, shut down their coated groundwood paper, but they will be shifting over to a fiber based liquid packaging. It's uh, something that we may be seeing more of coming in the future. If you look at it on the sawmill side, Potlatch Deltic had a fire out there at their Ola mill, uh, but they're re- rebuilding with improvements. So with that, they're hoping to expand their capacity. So we're not seeing a new facility, but we're seeing more capacity at those mills. As, as things happen and things happen, I mean, you have fires, you have issues at the different mills, but when they come back online most of the time they're coming back where they're able to produce more than they were prior to the events
1: the existing the existing ones there are just increasing their bandwidth as they see the possibility of more capabilities that's, that is correct
0: well it's good to hear that the demand uh, for these products is resulting in some additional investment and hopefully that that's going to mean more competition and and better prices for landowners that that want to sell their timber. These are the kind of things that, you know, as a, as a timberland owner, you want to pay attention to in your local market. And this is what you guys do at Timber Mart South. You look at things on a statewide average, but you also can kind of peer down into local markets and see what's going on. uh, Keeping your, your finger on the pulse of things. So if folks want to get in touch with you guys, get a subscription, and and keep an eye on what's happening uh, in the market that's important to them. What's the best place for them to go and and keep in touch with you guys?
2: The easiest way to get to us is our phone number and all is located on our website, uh, www.timbermart-south.com. You can see our contact information there, but we always, for most landowners, unless you're in the business day in and out, we always point back to a consultant in the area uh, trying to get people plugged in there. They know what the markets are doing on a daily basis. Um, our information is quarterly. We're good for a, a pulse of what the, the market has done, but for uh, timber sale, and uh, capitalizing on an investment that you've held for 20, 30 years, uh, it's always good to get a local consultant's advice there.
0: Jonathan, thanks for, for joining us. So uh, we'll be looking forward to the next report.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you for having
0: me. All right. Well, this week's current timber market update has been brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metal Works are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. Save time and money by buying from the most reliable manufacturer on the Gulf Coast. If you buy it today, you pick it up today. They offer 20 Sherwin-Williams colors to choose from and a 40-year warranty. Baker Metal and Dixie Supply, two names. Same great service. With the addition of their new store in Cantonment, Florida, they now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. And also brought to you by Boater's List. Boater's List is your new reliable and fast resource designed to link everyone to everything on the water. If you run a boat, you know how difficult it can be to find the right company for the task at hand. Boater's List makes this easy and easy to find the service you are looking for. Locate anything from fuel docks to service repairs or rentals of large yachts all the way down to paddle boards and all things in between. Boaterslist.com will always strive to make it better on the water. All right, so on today's show, we're going to be talking with someone who really understands the native species in the woods that are there or what should be there in a manner that's going to help them either become more successful hunter or save some money, save some time with what they're doing each year on their land. Joining us today is Kyle Leibarger. He's a private forester and the founder of the Native Habitat Project. Kyle, Butch and I both, you know, own some land in South Alabama. Where are you located?
3: Um, I'm up here in North Alabama near Hartsell. It's here in Morgan County, so northern half of the state.
0: Well, tell us first off about the Native Habitat Project, what your goal is.
3: And how'd you start it? How'd you get started?
0: Yeah. How'd you get into this?
3: I guess for the past four or five years, I've been in the native plants and I'm a forester. My background's forestry. And uh, so I started with my job. I was on a bunch of different private properties and uh, walking around these places. I started coming across a lot of plants that I'd never seen before. And just, you know, it seemed like every week I was coming across like a rare plant that, you know, hadn't ever been seen in that county or isn't ever really found in Alabama. A lot of really important grassland species that were threatened or endangered and just like barely hanging on here in the state, you know, that's because 99% of our grasslands have been lost. But so I started making TikToks about these places and, uh, and then that kind of blew up and people wanted to help out. And so that's how the native habitat project was born. And uh, you know, now I manage a lot of these places, you know, if the landowner allows me to I'll uh, burn them or uh, grow plugs, collect seeds from some of those plants. And uh, some of the rare ones I'll donate to uh, a native seed bank with the Southeastern Grassland Initiative and things like that. So it's really just really all about saving our grassland species here in the Southeast that nobody's really paying attention to. And and most people would step right over and not even know it was there. So,
0: Well, that's the first cool thing I've heard coming from TikTok.
3: (laughs) yeah. Yeah. (laughs) yeah influencers
1: yeah. in the wild literally
3: yeah. yeah
0: well man tell us uh you know you're talking about natives and, and like you said they're barely hanging on in a lot of cases so let's define that
3: what are native plants you know what naturally occurred there wasn't brought in by uh humans isn't from you know overseas you'll hardly find any native plants for sale at your local garden center i'd say 99 of the plants there are going to be non-native species you know from asia most of the stuff that's probably in your flower bed is probably from asia or europe and and some of these plants are even plants that we've had, we think is Southern plants, like crepe myrtle or something, and they're Asian. And so it's na- what's native is just what's always been here, post-European settlement. So yeah, pre-European settlement.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was here when we got here, so to
0: speak.
3: Yeah,
1: Going in that route, it was really cool. The podcast that y'all did with Chestnut Hill talking about the chestnuts.
0: I was thinking the exact same thing the American chestnut and
1: was, I mean, that was all there was here, right? You did that podcast. I'm not, I did listen to it, but you were all up in it.
0: Yeah. From what I understand from, from those guys, I mean, the American chestnut was Kyle, you could probably tell me, but if it wasn't the most prevalent hardwood tree in North America, it was one of the most prevalent hardwood trees in North America. Now there's none.
3: Yep, it absolutely was. East of the Mississippi was the most prevalent, and it was the largest. wild, And it was a great timber species and had rot-resistant wood, and it was a food source for humans and wildlife. It was a really important tree, and I actually found one in my uh, in-law's backyard here in North Alabama, Really, and it's about head high. Um, It gets maybe 10 foot and dies off, and that's just existing rootstock from back in the 1800s.
0: Yeah. Never can get back to where it can bear wow. bear fruit. And and from what I understand about like, like using chestnuts as an example, the reason we lost that species was because of some of this Asian influence, you know, and some of these plants that were brought in, there was a blight that was brought in. And so that, I mean, that brings me to the next question. Why Why are we losing our native species i mean is there a multitude of reasons but what's the what are the biggest threats
3: from things like that and then uh just the land use is changing uh, a lot of our grasslands were lost because they were such rich ground when uh, a lot of these areas were settled obviously the open areas are going to be the first places we set settle because you don't have to do any land clearing so those are turned into pastures that are overgrazed and ag fields uh housing and stuff now but Most of those grasslands are just really rich soil, and that's why most of those are gone. So a lot of them that I'm finding are just little tiny corners of a property or on a power line or a real rocky barren. Those barrens and glades that just have really shallow soils with a lot of rocks, those are easier to find right now because... You know, those weren't used for farm fields. You can't really do much with them. So that's where I can find a lot of, you know, even tall grass prairie plants to use on restoring some, you know, areas that would have normally been tall grass prairie, but were converted into uh, pasture land or ag fields or something.
0: Yeah. You know, and Butch, going back to what you're talking about with the American chestnut and now the Dunstan chestnut, which is a hybrid that is being promoted. One, because of the wildlife palatability. I mean, they look for that. uh, They really like that.
1: And it produces the chestnuts within, what, six or seven years, I think? Yeah, it's, it's a lot, lot
0: faster than some of the species out there and that kind of thing. But that's my next question, Kyle, is, is why are these native species important for wildlife?
1: Or just in general, not even necessarily for wildlife. Why are they so important to maintain and to keep what you have and to also build on what you have?
3: I think we owe it to future generations to, to keep a lot of these places looking the way they would have looked when we got here. I know that I wish I could go back and see those chestnuts, you know, we're talking about, how cool would that be? And, and they're not here anymore. And I don't want my kids to go through that too, with even more species. So the sooner we go to planting native species and stop bringing in non-native things, the less problems we're going to have. And I guess it's just time to learn our lesson, you know, maybe, but I mean, for all of our wildlife are adapted to these plants. That's what they've had for thousands and thousands of years. And it's not just, you know, your deer and Turkey and your game species. It's uh, insects and reptiles and amphibians, songbirds. These plants hold the ecosystem together. You know, it's like basic biology. Back in high school, you got your trophic levels, your pyramid. The foundation of that pyramid is native plants. A step above that are your like insects and things that feed on those native plants. And then above that are things that feed on those insects or small animals and your grazers and things like that. And it's just like builds up from there but the foundation of all of our wildlife and our ecosystems are the native plants and what's growing in that area so that when i came to that realization i realized hey a lot of the times we we try to manage our wildlife from the top of the pyramid you know with your predators and stuff like that you think that's how you're going to create more habitat more deer more turkey when in fact if you focus on the bottom the foundation the fuel like that's where they get all their energy from you focus on creating more diversity more native plants you're going to have all sorts of wildlife, not just your game species, but you're going to have more wildlife, more deer and turkey and quail. Plus you're going to have all those other things that depend on those plants. So kind of the foundation. And, and if we don't have native plants, we don't have native wildlife.
1: So like us as landowners and hunters and being on, you know, on our land as much as we can, what can we do? Is it better to, you know, walk through your property and try to identify these yourself and, or get a professional to go through it? And then what, after that, after identifying what you have that is native, what can we do to cultivate it or make it better or keep it going, I guess?
3: You can absolutely do it yourself. Um, but, you, you know, with apps these days, like iNaturalist, you can go through with your phone. And uh, what I did was, you know, I would go out on a property once a week and anything that I saw that was flowering or any like leaf that I'd never seen before, I'd, you know, take a picture of it and go home and learn it. And now you could do it with iNaturalist and learn it right there. And uh, that's the best way to learn your property and what you have. And then once you find some of those plants, you start researching those and say, you know, well, this one only grows on limestone soils, and that gives you, you know, you start learning your property a little bit better. But you're going to have different types of ecosystems on your property too, and 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 that's going to help you figure that out. But in order to like cultivate it and make those places better, it's really dependent on the site. So. Uh, if it's a place that's been disturbed and and it's mostly non-natives now you got a lot of you know fescue or privet or whatever it's just mostly a non-native monoculture those areas might need totally wiped clean and started over from scratch but if you got an area where you have a lot of good natives mixed in there you know it's going to be a little bit of a different approach trying to bring back those native plants you're going to want to target those invasives and and you know while keeping your natives so for like privet and fescue you can spray those in the in the fall or spring, when they're the only thing that has green leaves and that'll leave your native plants alone and they'll your natives will leaf out come summer, you'll leave those non-natives dead. So figuring out how to approach it really just changes from property to property and it even changes from different areas on your property. You, you're going to manage each little area different depending on what kind of invasives you have there or if there aren't invasives and it's all natives. You know, maybe you can cut down a few trees and bring in some more sunlight if it's a lot of grass and species, or maybe you can add fire to it. And it's just really dependent on what you got and what kind of ecosystem it is.
1: Revitalizes it. That's a, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. Um, and also, uh, we did not know about this whenever we sought you out for this podcast, but, but I mean, you can actually buy and then plant these native species to grow more on your property, correct?
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Companies like Roundstone here in the southeast, Roundstone out of Kentucky is going to be one of the closest down there in the panhandle of Florida, I think his name's Joe Reams, um, Southern Habitats. He has a native plant nursery, you know, and they're all native plants collected there from the that coastal area. That's the biggest thing. Find a seed dealer close to you. Um, you know, if you're in the Midwest, you know, prairie moon or, or pure air natives. If you're in the Northeast, Ernst Seeds, Pinelands Nursery, places like that, they're going to have, you know, native seeds to your area. And so that's one of the most important things. Uh, try to find a source that's close to you. And those, those places even sell plugs, you know, plugs of native wildflowers, mossy oak, native nurseries. That's another one. You just find a nursery close to you. And even small, like myself, I have a small native plant nursery here behind my house. you can find those in your area and those people are going to have plants grown from seeds that they have collected in that area. And uh, you can do that yourself. I mean, that's how I got into it. Once you start identifying some of these plants on your place, you can, just keep an eye on them. And when they go to seed, harvest those seeds and you can plant them on other places on your property or use those seeds to grow plugs. And, and it's a lot easier than you think it'd be. And it, in my opinion, is pretty enjoyable. It kind of gives you another way to enjoy your property out of hunting season.
0: Man, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed cataloging species on my place. And that's something I'm just kind of just getting into. Uh, you know, most of the time... We talked about earlier most of the time i'm thinking about where to put a tree stand or you know <laughs> where mm-hmm. the turkeys are roosting or something like that and being able to go out with my family with non-hunters
1: that's what i was just about to say it'd be a really cool thing to do in the off-season with your son or your Absolutely. wife likes to go in the woods mine doesn't but <laughs> just well but to she do, might if around. she
0: might if you you know if you right. say hey, let's go catalog some plants you know that may be yeah. more her her speed but that's a lot of fun for me. I enjoy it. It's a little bit overwhelming when you start to realize the diversity that's there, if you're on a property that has good diversity. And then like you say, hey, this is a plant that we have found. Now, is it native or isn't it? And what do we need to do here? Do we need to leave it alone? Do we need to get involved? Is there resources that someone can look to locally or where they can just learn more about not just particular species, but looking to create these kind of habitats and ecosystems, or, or is there someone that they can get out on their property? You know, I mean, when I have mm-hmm. questions about my timber stands, I got my consultant forester that comes out. Is there someone that you'd want to have out to look at your overall ecosystem and say, this is what you might think about doing?
3: Yeah. There's botanists all over the state. And some of those folks would come out. You can also, you know, do that on your own using iNaturalist. You know, when you take a picture of something, it's going to tell you about that plant, where it's from. And then you can click on the information and it's going to show you a map of where everybody else has seen that plant. So you can look to that and see if it's pretty common to your area, if it's not common. And then you can also look to like in Alabama, we have Alabama plant atlas. So when you find a plant, you can search it on our plant atlas and it tells you what counties it's native to. It'll tell you a little bit about that plant, what type of ecosystems it lives in. Also, uh, you know, quail forever biologists, that's a good source. Those quail forever guys really know their native plants because they have to. Because you know, quail, they're a specialist species. You change a little bit of their habitat, and they're gone. I mean, deer are generalists. I mean, not to down the deer, but they're basically goats. They can eat anything. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's they can survive in a neighborhood. Right. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Quail, they're really specific on what they need. So, those quail biologists have to know their stuff. So, that's a good source, the quail forever, pheasant forever, guys. Also, some of your state game biologists may know, maybe not a lot of them, and probably not a lot of foresters either. this just isn't something we've learned about in forestry school, at least, you know, your native wildflowers and native grasses and ecosystems, but also a great source is a uh, Facebook group. We started it last about this time last year. It's called native habitat managers. And it's all, I mean, every, you know, big native habitat enthusiast and person who does it as a career is on that page. And if you get on there and say, Hey, I'm from, you know, you know, the panhandle of Florida, you're going to meet half a dozen dozen folks on there who are from that area and they're going to know where to point you in the right direction. And that's going to be a great contact. And you'll likely learn a lot from those folks too. And I can't say enough, you know, just meet folks who are interested in that kind of stuff in your area because you're going to learn a lot from those kind of people.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Very cool.
0: I'm glad you brought up quail forever, just quail in general and and the relationship with deer because deer is the most popular thing out there. Right. But Mm -hmm. I've never been on a quail property that wasn't
1: absolutely covered up with deer they say yeah. you've managed for quail you get them all right you know <laughs> right what they say? yeah and
0: turkeys you know i right. mean it's like you know th- just covered up i mean and you mm-hmm. know a lot of times the quail the quail hunters they don't they don't care about the deer you know so
3: yeah and that's because like you, you know. have to you have to manage a native ecosystem to have them yeah and of course north american native ecosystems are going to be beneficial to deer because they're from north america i mean it's just common ecology
0: right All right, guys, let's take a quick break. Don't forget about our sponsors and make sure you support them when you're out in the marketplace. And this week's show has been brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. Buying rural property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land, to tractors and crops, because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. Kyle, how does a hunter, someone who's a hunter first, get involved with native species in a manner that's going to help them either become a more successful hunter or save some money, save some time with what they're doing each year?
1: on their land you mean as far as not planting greenfields or something like that
0: well or not necessarily not planting greenfields but just like you know what do you see as things that people are doing that they could avoid doing and not take any
1: thing away from the land i mean taking it away yeah.
0: from their hunting you know i mean yeah. like i just think about like we're talking about prescribed fire we're talking about uh re-establishing these plants i would imagine that you know there's some things if it's native it's just it's are most of these plants are gonna be perennials, right? I mean is it kind of a mm-hmm. you do it once yep. and you're done kind of thing other than just some some disturbance every once in a while?
3: Yeah. I'd like to tell a story for that answer. So when I started out, you know I've always I've been into just about every trend uh deer hunter could possibly be in and and uh I about 10 years ago, I had this property, 40 acres up the road from my house. and, And like most properties, it has, it's mostly wooded and there's a couple open areas. And so the first open area I got to, I just wiped it clean, sprayed everything, killed it down to nothing and tried planting a food plot there. And it did well for a couple of years, but like most food plots, I mean, it's a lot of upkeep. And so bottom area, I had started, I was, had started clearing it to make it a food plot. And so I was cutting down a bunch of cedar trees. Well, the next year I came back and where I cut down all those cedar trees where there were all these plants coming up that I had never seen before, um, rattlesnake master, li- several different liatresses and milkweeds and, and big blue stem, and little blue stem. And it was just really diverse. And uh, I had a botanist friend. I showed a picture of it too. And he was like, I've, you know, I've got to see this place. And so we figured out, you know, that was the first grass and remnant I came across and uh, it was a limestone baron and, you know, I had destroyed one of them trying to turn it into a food plot you know because those open areas it's open for a reason it's probably been open for mm. you know centuries and it's been a grassland and, and slowly got encroached on to where is the last little remaining opening so those places are where you find lots of rare plants so if you got a place like that i just i, I like to, to caution you know hunters know what you got there before you you destroy it and try to turn it into something else because what I was turning it into was a lot less beneficial for wildlife than what it was previously. And I had no idea, you know, so now uh, I've been slowly restoring that one back into a native grassland, but I've got more deer out there than ever, every evening, just tons of deer come out into those limestone glades and barrens and where all those native grasses and wildflowers and they're browsing on shrubs. There's, you know, native plums and, and, uh, and, uh, hawthorns and shrubby St. John's wort shrubs and, and a rusty black call viburnum. I mean, all kinds of native shrubs out there, they're browsing on those, but also, you know, they use those native grasses and they like to bed down there because they, when it's cold, they got the sunlight on them and they stay out of the wind while they're laying in those grasses. So it creates cover, it creates food. And I feel like it makes a property more, more diverse and more, you know, it benefits more than just one species. So instead of targeting one species and trying to manage one species you know, I kind of switched gears and now I'm managing the ecosystem as a whole. And so anytime you do that, you're also going to be managing and benefiting that one target species you're trying to benefit. So, uh, I, I forget your question now, but I hope I answered <laughs> it <well. laughs> no, that, was, that was really cool. That's yeah. I, I never
1: heard of any of those things you just said. I don't think, which is really, really sad.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Like you
0: say, I'm, it boils down to before you. Crank up the tractor.
1: Yeah. Take your time a little bit. It's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Or
0: do whatever it is you're thinking about doing. Get a little bit more educated because mm-hmm. you may be costing yourself more time and more money to do something that you just don't need to do it. I mean, you could now yeah. be spending that time and no, don't get me wrong. I like jumping on the tractor and planting a food plot. It's oh yeah, It's fun. I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. saying, but that being said, if I didn't have to plant food plots every year, I could burn more.
3: Yeah. Well, absolutely. Or do something else entirely. Here's my answer to that. Plant food plots too. But take your worst spot on your property. Find your worst spot, you know, that's covered in privet or it's just solid fescue and take that spot and turn it into a food plot Mm -hmm. because that's going to be taking your worst spot and, you know, improving upon it. Don't take your best spot and try to turn it into a food plot because you'll most likely take your best spot and turn it into a worst spot, so...
0: Yeah, that's a great kind of paradigm shift to think about to say, like, you go into your property with the mindset of, all right, first thing I'm going to do is identify where all the invasives are, I'm going to identify what the worst soil conditions are, and then I'm going to go into those areas and use the disturbance to get rid of these invasives and bring it back and turn an area that has absolutely no, maybe very little biological value and turn that into something that is now going to benefit wildlife. Mm-hmm. And then those areas that are already doing that, you can leave those alone and let them do what they do naturally. I love that. That's yeah. an actionable step you can take right now.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's when I walk into a property, I'm finding the best spot and I'm finding the worst spot. And then those are going to be the two areas I focus on first because I want to keep my best spot, the best spot, and figure out how I can make it even better or, you know, just make sure it doesn't get worse. And then I want to take my worst spot and start working to improve on it. I mean, for obvious reasons, but that's a, that's a great way to look at your property and and figure out those two spots and and then start improving on them. But yeah, if this is, so this is what I tell people, you know, this is how to find out what's native to your area and start researching it. I find what physiographic region I'm in, that's the best thing. So I'm in the molten Valley of Alabama. You got Tennessee Valley, you got the Cumberland Plateau, you got the Black Belt. I'm in the Molten Valley, so you can get on the iNaturalist app or on their website, iNaturalist, and look at their projects and type in, just type in Molten Valley. And it'll come up Molten Valley savannas, Molten Valley grasslands, Molten Valley limestone, barrens, what forest species in the Molten Valley, whatever. And if they have any of those projects, click on them, and it's going to give you a list of what everybody is seeing in those types of ecosystems. So that's like the closest you're going to get to a complete list of your the type of ecosystem your property is and you can also do like nearby projects and that's also going to tell you some projects that are in your area and you might find a really good one and they may not always be named after your physiographic region but up in my area there's a lot that are named after each physiographic region and really narrows it down to each ecosystem so once you do that you'll get a pretty pretty good list of uh of what grows there
0: i'm already excited to get on this app and start using it i've never heard of it before yeah i'm gonna put it to use this weekend i mean gosh every time you walk to a tree stand you could be cataloging some plants you know i mean there's plenty of stuff i'm walking by where i'm just like i don't know what that is i mean there's some grass over there yeah Yeah.
3: Yeah. (laughs) or if you hear about a plant and you want to search it you can search it on there and you know say american plum you want to see if american plum is native to your area you can get on there and go to explore and search it and it'll show you an entire map of where everybody's been seeing it in its natural range. And so you can see if somebody's been seeing it in your area and you got to be careful doing this, but that's also a good way of finding seed sources for some cool native plants in your area. As long as it's not on private lands or public land, if it's on public lands or maybe a roadside or something, you know, if it's a cool native plant and you want to use it in a restoration on your property, you can go collect seeds from it. That's a great practice in my opinion, as long as you're not out there digging up don't go digging up rare things or something. Right, co-
0: right. Co-
3: Collecting seeds, a few seeds. That's a different. That's a different thing. So.
0: Yeah, you're dressed in all black out in people's yards, collecting yeah. stealing, <laughs> stealing grass.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm saving the world. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought that up too, because that's my next question. Is it expensive to reestablish natives? You mentioned being able to collect seeds that are just out there, but are there cost share programs out there? Just like with the longleaf pine, we hear about it a lot, and there's cost share programs out there that. For landowners to reestablish longleaf on their properties, can nullify the expense or some of the expense to doing that. Same thing with prescribed fire. What about native? Are there cost-share programs out there? And if, and if somebody does uh, meet a lot of people that say, man, I don't want to be involved in any cost-share programs. I should do it on my own. Is it expensive to do
2: this?
3: It can be. So, you know, if you contact like Quell Forever or NRCS, you know, there are some programs that'll cost share and, and they'll get you some seeds. And yeah, the average person is going to get on there and look at the per pound price for some of those native wildflower seeds and think, holy you know, mess, this is expensive, but you're not going to be planting as many pounds per acre as a lot of the food plot seeds and stuff. And you can, there's ways to, you know, get around that plant a small area and allow them to grow. And those are going to each year, the the amount of seeds they make is going to multiply and spread onto your property. So you can start with just small areas. If you start a small planting right now within a couple of years, it's just like investing or something. You're going to just keep on building upon your seed bank and all those native seeds. Another thing, you know, go collect your own seeds. That's what I do. When I find a native plant, I'll start collecting seeds from it. And you can just throw them in a bucket or something, make sure they're dry and don't mold, but you can start collecting your own native seeds from around your area. And that's, to me, that's the best practice. But yeah, first time you look at some of those native seeds, you'll think, man, that was, that's expensive. But you got to think about this too. You plant them once and they're going to be there for forever. It's not a food plot seed that you're having to plant every year. You're having They have to keep those food plot seeds cheap because people are purchasing them every single year and natives you're going to purchase it once and that most of these natives grasses native wildflowers are perennials and uh they're going to come back you don't have to fertilize them you don't have to amend the soils it's a one-time deal and they take care of themselves
1: well like you say every little bit helps and if you start small then you know work your way up or every every little bit would have to help i would have to think yeah yeah. Well, I like what you're
0: talking to, you know, back to the original question of what is a native plant and, and these plants being adapted to the soils and the climate that you're in, you know, in your area, that just means that they're going to be better suited to flourish without inputs without the need for fertilizer and that kind of thing so i guess it you know it doesn't mean that you're still not going to get that tractor time it just yeah. may mean that that tractor time may be spent getting things ready to burn or mm-hmm. or killing off some some invasives or, or doing some things like that as opposed to yeah. you know having to go in and
3: you can use mowing or discing as a form of disturbance. You know, if you have a large grassland area, mow or disc, you know, a quarter of it every fall. You know, after they produce seeds, and you can use that to kind of uh, mimic uh, fire. And uh, you know, being diverse with the way you manage these areas and the disturbances you cause there, the beneficial disturbances like that's going to increase, you know, the diversity on your property too. And and the more diversity, the more different habitat changes, better it's going to be for things like deer and turkey and quail. So just be diverse about it. And I mean, you can still use your tractor for different things. And, uh, definitely. So
1: as you can tell, Joe's very worried about his tractor. Time yeah. yeah, yeah. Down. You're not getting me off. I'm going to do something <laughs> yeah. on
3: it. Yeah, it sounds like that might be his, his therapist. I think yeah. so. That's what it sounds like. Tractor therapy there. The yeah. old Dr. Kubota. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, Kyle,
0: man, it's been fun today.
1: I learned a lot, man. I really enjoyed this one.
0: Yeah. I'd like to walk through the woods with you at some me point. We got to make uh, that happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, if folks want to follow along with what you're doing, you keep it fun online and and have fun with what you're doing and keep it interesting. How can they follow along with the Native
3: Habitat Project? Um, so on TikTok, it's, it's Native Plant Talk, but on everything else, Instagram, Facebook, uh patreon which is where you can support if you'd like to uh it's all native habitat project so just native habitat project all right Kyle.
0: thanks for joining us man you're probably going to get some text from me here pretty soon hey man what's
1: this (laughs) what is
0: (laughs) it that's right Uh, joe's blowing you up right (laughs) i already get
3: those so that's that's perfectly perfectly fine i like it well thanks for joining us today man yeah thanks for having me on guys
0: enjoyed
1: it kyle thanks buddy bye
0: Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you to get the podcast emailed to you each week. Just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list and wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got a show topic, that you are interested in and like to see us cover just email us at pros at that's gonna do it for us y'all stay safe out there we'll talk to you next time this week's hunt land show is brought to you by bucks island marine bucks island is a full service facility that sells new and used boats and motors visit them at 4500 highway 77 Southside, alabama or give them a call at 256-442-2588 And also brought to you by MB Ranch King. Save time and money when you buy MB Ranch King's maintenance-free hunting blinds. Call Kevin for info or quotes. 205-807-2937. MB Ranch King, built in the pursuit of perfection. And also by The Hunting Exchange. Buy and sell your hunting gear securely online. PayPal protected purchases, no hidden charges, listings are free head over to the app store or google play and download the hunting exchange app today and also brush clearing services check out their full line of property and land services at brushclearingservices.com or call them at 706-718-1690 and also by southern seed and feed do you want to provide better nutrients for your deer check out southern buck your deer will love it Visit their website at southernseedfeed.com or call 662-726-2638 to find the dealer nearest you. And also brought to you by Great Days Outdoors magazine. Great Days Outdoors magazine guides you on hunting and fishing south of the Mason Dixon. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today wherever fine magazines are sold or save online at
2: greatdaysoutdoors.com.